News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you feeling more rested this week? With our return to standard time, technically we gained an hour of sleep on the weekend, but it probably was not enough to make up for the sleep deficit that most Canadians actually have. In fact, experts in the field say that with the advent of COVID-19, the sleep issues that we already had have turned lack of sleep into a serious health concern that now verges on a crisis. So what can you do to improve this? Well, to talk more about this, we're joined now by Jonathan Charest, who's a PhD, the Director of Athlete Sleep Services, Behavioral Sleep Medicine Specialist at the Center for Sleep. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me this morning. Well, first of all, that's quite the title. What do you do at the Center for Sleep? I essentially, I help uh, both the uh, general public and athletes to uh, optimize their sleep in order to increase their performance, uh, either if it's for a uh, athletic performance or work performance or an overall general uh, performance. So that you just want to increase uh, or better your mood and uh, your life in general and well-being. Okay, so how much of a difference does it make to get a good night's sleep? How much does that improve our performance? It makes all the difference in the world, in fact. So you just have to experience one poor night of sleep and you already feel the effect of lack of sleep. We all have these nights. Uh, so the, in terms of if we want to put numbers, we're talking neighborhood of 3 to 5% of improvement. This may seem low, but an improvement of 3 to 5% that is only obtainable by getting a nice sleep is a free addition that you can have every night. So to me, this is quite significant. Okay, so what is the key to getting that? So the key to get a good night of sleep is, of course, having a nice pre-bedtime routine, uh, activities that you enjoy that you can repeat almost every night, having a similar bedtime and wake time weekdays, weekend, weekend. And of course, please, for everyone, put the electric device and the screen away at least half an hour before reaching bed. Okay, this is the thing. I think a lot of people, they start doing things around bedtime, Jonathan, and, they, and they, they're not tired, so they don't want to go to sleep. But do we really have to be disciplined about it? Well, the blue light will have an impact, and that's why uh, with DST now ending and PST, so standard time, we are very happy with that. And the reason we are happy, it's not because we are uh, only getting one extra hour of sleep on that Sunday. It's because the light exposure we do experience in the evening is reduced naturally by going back an hour. So if we do uh, use our screen every night, then we, were, we will be exposed to blue light. And that blue light will have a detrimental impact on the uh, secretion of your melatonin. So therefore, you will have trouble maintaining your sleep. Okay, so how big of a problem is this, Jonathan? How would you describe our sleep crisis in Canada? It's a, a sleep crisis is quite significant. Uh, if you only get around six hours of sleep on average per night, uh, which is still good, but we saw uh, a decrease in performance, especially behind the wheel. And right now with the reality of Canadian winter, we need to be more attentive on the road. But if we don't sleep accordingly or properly, then we're just increasing the likelihood of having a fender bender or a more serious car incident. Does everybody have like a different number of like what the number of ideal hours is or is there just overall the perfect amount of sleep? 
Oh, the perfect amount of sleep will be stratified by group age. So if we take the biggest group age, so 18 to 64, the National Sea Foundation will recommend having a, a night of sleep between seven and nine hours. Uh, for teenager, this uh, will go up uh, one hour, so it will be between eight and ten hour. And for uh, elderly, so 65 and older, they will recommend between seven and eight hour. So these will be the uh, the general recommendation in terms of how much sleep you should get. But no one should forget that the quantity of sleep does not always equal the quality of your sleep. So if someone gets seven to nine hour and still on refresh in the morning, it will be recommended to have a discussion with uh, your family physician to make sure you don't have a, a primary sleep disorder such as sleep apnea. So how do we improve the quality of our sleep? So the quality of our sleep is, again, reducing all the obvious factors such as smoking, alcohol, then increasing physical activity, decreasing the exposure to blue light, which is the screen we were referring to before, uh, having a uh, regular bedtime, and this one, I cannot say it enough, is being exposed to light, but in the morning. The more light exposure we get in the morning, sunlight, the less of an impact, the following light we may be exposed to will have an impact during the next evening. So really, your next night preparation start as you're getting up with that light exposure in the morning. Right, but if it's dark when you get up, it's very dark when I get up, by the way. Does that, does that mean that, like, turning lights on, like, just keeping things bright? Uh, yeah, so there is such a thing called a bright light therapy, uh, which are little uh, bright lights you can buy on, uh, on Amazon, of course, on Internet, and you need them to be at 10,000 lux. Uh, so if they are at 10,000 lux, a lot of my patients will bring these devices uh, at their office because, yeah, uh, some of my worker, uh, shift worker, they, they wake up, it's dark, they finish work, it's dark. So we do implement these strategy of having these little uh, bright light with them at, at, at work. Okay, that is so interesting. I'll have the bright light therapy. Do, do you think, though, Jonathan, have people been having more problems this week? Like, do you notice more people talking about their sleep after the time change happens? Well, sleep is a big uh, top. It's a big subject two times a year in November and in March, when we spring forward and when we fall back. <laughs> so even though we were granted a 24-hour Sunday, uh, I don't blame people not using it for, for uh, improving their sleep or taking advantage. Of course, I'm biased. I'm a sleep guy, so I'm going to use it as, as for sleep. Uh, but yeah, now I'm thinking about young, par- young parents, uh, those who have uh, infant and toddler. They don't realize that. It's, uh, it's an extra hour of sleep for them. So if they're used to be awake at 6.30, well, there's a big chance that on Sunday morning the, their kid was awake at 5.30. So, yes, we're hearing more and more of these sleep complaints around this time. But in the, in the biggest scheme of all things, I think going back to uh, that tender time will be beneficial for everyone on the long term. Hmm, okay, so we also hear from people like, oh, I'm just not a morning person. And so I always wonder, is it possible to train somebody to have like a regular sleeping pattern that they need to have, even if they don't feel like they're a morning person? Absolutely. So we have allegedly three types of sleeper. So you have early birds. Uh, you can picture them as going to bed around 9 and 10 and waking up around 5, 6. You have intermediate. Uh, those will be in bed between around 11 and wake up at 7. And then you have night owl. Those who will go to bed around midnight 1 and wake up at 8, 9. So these are your three sleepers. Of course, you can 
you can already imagine that a teenager, for example, that wants to wake up naturally at eight, nine will always be late at school. Uh, so we do have strategies to uh, to shift them, either advanced people or delayed people in terms of bedtime. And the biggest factor for that is light, light exposure and absence of light. So that's why when you, you, you can understand why we don't like uh, daylight saving time, especially for our night hour, if they are exposed to light too late in the evening, they will not be able to initiate sleep at a decent hour, and therefore their morning will be a nightmare. Okay, so it's possible. We just have to take it more seriously, don't we, Jonathan? Well, sleep is one of those non-negotiable biologic needs that we have, and for some reason, it is almost the only one that we do negotiate and that we try to reduce. I've never seen or I really see people that are not on a very strict diet trying to negotiate the amount of food they take. But for some reason, we always negotiate, oh, I can go on with only six hours or five hours. I can do this. And there's this badge of honor also that, see, I'm only getting five hours of sleep and I'm still very productive during my day. The point is not that you cannot go through a day with only five hours of sleep. It's you're just not the best version of yourself. And you may be more exposed to injury and illness. Someone who is sleep-restricted, sleep-deprived, is more likely to catch a, a flu, for example. Hmm. Okay, see, all important stuff to know. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. And please, everyone, take care of your sleep. I will, for sure. That's Jonathan Sherry, PhD, Director of Athlete Sleep Services, Behavioral Sleep Medicine Specialist at the Center for Sleep. Good advice. I know. I wonder how many hours. Like, I get probably about seven. I'm about seven on the nose every night, and I try to be disciplined about that. How about you? How many hours of sleep do you get a night? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. On any given day in the United States, they love to talk politics. On a day like today, voting in midterm elections, it is a national obsession, and you will find little else to see, hear, or read about. So, of course, our Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, is going to be busy today. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. All right, what are we looking for today? What are the big storylines here? Well, I mean, look, the big storylines are going to be who winds up gaining control of power uh, in Washington uh, because the entire Senate, uh, rather the entire House is up for grabs right now. That's more than 400 seats. The Senate, uh, there are 35 seats that are up for grabs and Republicans only need to flip one in the Senate to get control. They need to flip five in the House to get control. And if that happens, we end up with a potential logjam in D.C. because the president, the White House, will not be able to get their agenda to move forward. Okay, so how are the polls looking right now? So it depends on which poll we are looking at. If you're looking at something like Pennsylvania, it is a near tie uh, when it comes to that senatorial race between uh, John Fetterman and Dr. Mehmet Oz. If we're talking about the polls in Georgia, it is a near tie between Herschel Walker and incumbent Raphael Warnock. And both of those states could be uh, key to Democrats either keeping control or Republicans uh, potentially gaining control if they're able to flip those seats or maintain the seat in Pennsylvania. Overall, the polls show that there is more enthusiasm when it comes to voting. 78% of respondents from both parties uh, had that um, eagerness to be able to cast a ballot, and that is different for a midterm. Typically, we don't see this kind of a drive when it comes to bases in midterm elections, but the fact that 41 million people cast an early ballot could be a sign uh, that this is either going to be a potentially good night for Democrats who typically vote early, or it could be a sign for Republicans that they were able to get their base out by messages about inflation and the economy. 
Right, because it seems like the sides were talking about different things, right? You had inflation and economy on the one side. And I know on the other side, Democrats were really hoping that the overturning of Roe versus Wade would drive people to the polls. Yeah, and they peaked really early when that took place uh, earlier in the summer. When the Supreme Court overturned Roe, there was a real drive by the Democrats to get their base out, and there was real anger, and that anger still does exist. But the problem is the economy really started to hit home, and it was a problem that uh, that was impacting far more families across the country, and Republicans really seized and took advantage of that. Democrats, only in the last couple of weeks, really started to kind of flip their message to include the economy uh, in part of their kind of messaging campaign. Uh, you know, whether or not it, it, it registers, you know, we have to wait to find that out. There's also a chance here that that Roe decision could potentially drive out younger voters. They are ones who are often either overlooked in polling or they're the ones who don't often show up to vote on Election Day. So there's a hope here that Democrats are going to be able to push that young vote out because ultimately it could become uh, the make or break for Democrats. Right. What does this mean for 2024? Like looking ahead to two years from now, because I know a lot of the races that will all also be decided today are the people who kind of oversee election planning. Yeah, I mean, there's election deniers, uh, dozens of them, if not hundreds of them, that are running for multiple offices uh, across the country, uh, and a lot of them for secretaries of state. And secretary of state is in the U.S. who oversees state elections. And if you have election deniers from 2020 on the ballot, potentially winning, already crying foul about 2022, despite the fact that they may win, they may put in place or they may try to uh, restrict the ability for people to vote going forward, and that would impact the 2024 vote. So there are real concerns here uh, from uh, kind of civil rights activists and from Democrats that the election system wasn't broken, but is potentially at risk of being kind of whittled away by Republicans who simply want to ensure that Republicans are the ones who can cast a ballot, making it more difficult for Democrats to cast a ballot, say something like an early ballot or or a mail-in ballot, something Republicans are really trying to push back against. Right. And now I, I watch some American TV stations and it feels like this is all that's on them, ad, like ad after ad after ad. Uh, so what are the closest races to watch here? You mentioned Pennsylvania, you mentioned Georgia. What else are we watching? Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of House races. I mean, there's 400 plus House races that that are potentially going to uh, give Republicans the lift that they need. There are a couple of races in Virginia that oftentimes kind of flip back and forth every two to four years. There are races in Arizona, especially for the governor uh, of Arizona, Kari Lake, who has really kind of dove oh, into yes. this uh, election denialism and trying to blame things on the media, despite the fact she herself is a former news anchor. Uh, these are the, the concerning races, but it really is, it's Pennsylvania. It's Georgia. It's Wisconsin. It's Michigan. These are, are states that have an ability to turn blue, potentially are blue right now, that Republicans are really trying to flip around. I think, you know, outside of looking at the races, the thing to look at next is how this race, how the outcome tonight, even though we may not know some of it until, you know, December based on runoffs, especially in Georgia. How does this impact 2024, especially if we find out that Donald Trump is going to put his name in and that's something that could happen next Tuesday? Does the outcome of tonight's races have any impact on what happens to Donald Trump and his potential candidacy in two years? Okay, that's what I was going to ask you about. So he he mentioned this yesterday that he said he's going to be making an announcement next Tuesday. Is that, do you think, based on the issue that everybody thinks the Republicans are going to do well tonight? 
It's very possible. I mean, the reason that he likely didn't make the announcement last night, he just made the announcement to make an announcement, is because if Republicans don't come out, if there is kind of a lackluster performance, uh, that would be tied to him. And Republicans may say, well, look, you weren't the kingmaker that you said that you were. You know, we don't really need to rally behind you. If Republicans do really well, or at least if the ones that Donald Trump kind of handpicked and put into races, if they're the ones who win, that may give Republicans in the base, at least, a little bit more push to say, well, look, this is the person that we want on uh, the top of the ticket in 2024. You know, obviously, there are going to be things like investigations that could get in the way of how Donald Trump proceeds if he decides to put his name in the race. Uh, But ultimately, this announcement next week is going to coincide with a potential Republican wave across Mm -hmm. Congress. And it is also potentially going to set up a rematch of 2020, considering the current president has still not thrown out a no When he says that he's going to run, he also just hasn't thrown out a yes yet. This could really push Joe Biden to get an announcement out there. How tense is the situation, Reggie? I know that there's also concerns about uh, ballots being counted, people saying they're going to observe the ballots being counted. It just feels like a tense situation. Sure. And there's always a risk that you're going to have something, um, you know, some form of fear or tension or violence break out, especially when you have in certain states, there are armed people from uh, the Republican side who will guard ballot boxes and get into a bit of voter uh, intimidation. There are real fears about that. There's also fears generally about how the counting is going to go forward. In Pennsylvania, they're not allowed to count mail-in ballots until day one, which means that that delays the count. But number two, their Supreme Court in Pennsylvania has said that they're not allowed to even count any ballots that were sent in 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 the mail that may have had an incorrect date or a missing date on the external part of the ballot. So there are concerns here that the numbers may not actually be real because politics are trying to get in the way. So between the tensions, between the fear of violence and between the kind of politics that are being played to try and stop some people from being able to cast a ballot, it lets those tensions ride and ride and ride and go further. So while we may not get a clear outcome for the next couple of weeks, that tension is also going to follow along with that. Interesting. Well, you'll be busy today, Reggie. Thank you. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington Bureau Chief, talking about midterm elections. Yes, it's going to be, that's all it's going to be coming out of the United States today. That's all they're going to talk about. Uh, so we'll be talking, obviously, about the results, what that means for Canada and more. Of course, keeping an eye on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you tried looking for children's cold and flu medication lately, then you have undoubtedly seen the empty shelves. And if you have a sick child... That's a huge concern, especially since we continue to hear about rising hospital admissions and respiratory illnesses for kids right now. So let's find out what is going on with these medicines. Joining us is Dr. Brenda Narang, family physician and CKNW Global News medical contributor. Good morning, Dr. Narang. Good morning, Sibby. What are we doing here? What is happening with this shortage? <laughs> well, the shortage has been happening since the summer, but now that we are entering respiratory season, it's obviously... Um, there's much more visibility on it and yeah the the images of these major you know chains where you would expect certain things like this to be available are quite striking that um that this hasn't been able to be resolved is it a supply chain issue like we've been hearing with everything else um i think so i don't know by, like statistically what is driving it but i think if they say there's supply chain i'm sure that's an impact i'm sure there has been um, an element of some people, um, you know, stocking up now. I know that in certain places, uh, people are limited to how much they can buy over the counter. And I think a part part of it is that there is um, a lot of uncertainty um, 
among new parents and potentially, uh, you know, the impact of the pandemic on um, people knowing kind of when the right time to use these medications are. What is the right time to use those medications? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so exactly. So um, what? why do we use Tylenol Advil? The majority of the time is if they're uh, in the context of infections, is if there's a fever. So is there a fever and what is a fever? So I think that when we when we look at what a definition of a fever is, I think step one is make sure if you have a you know a child or baby at home, get a thermometer so you can actually be actually know when it is happening. And um, the we I tend to use a range of thirty eight. Um, some people use thirty eight point three Celsius, and if you do that to Fahrenheit, that's about a hundred point four Fahrenheit uh, is thirty eight degrees Celsius, and um, while none of us actually do this on a regular basis, the, we're trying to get what the body's core temperature is. And the most accurate is rectally, uh, but now with some of the new ones are, um, you know, pretty good if you're using it for mouth or ex um, the armpit. Um, the forehead ones, maybe not as accurate sometimes. Okay. And are we seeing more of these cases? I keep hearing about how, you know, things are creeping up, wait times, particularly at BC Children's Hospital. Yeah, so there's been a lot of focus on um, BC Children's Hospital, and that's because um, a lot of that information is, 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 you can see it on the ED wait times website, so you can, you know, if anyone can see what the wait time is there, and there's been a lot of attention to that, because yet there's, you know, the average is up, I think there's over 140 kids seen there, um, eight, nine hours wait time, but if we look at what's happening in some of the other jurisdictions, I think it is a system-wide issue, so let's look at um, Surrey Memorial, where um, you know the um, some of the numbers that I've seen in the last week, every day there's been over 170 um, children seen in that emergency room, with over 240 one day on the weekend, and they actually have uh, a lot less um, staff available um, compared to um, BC Children. So. Um, there really is system-wide pressures, and I, I know that, that Minister Dix has um, addressed that. And uh, the reasons I think that that's happening is, uh, one, we are in a respiratory season now. Influenza cases are up. Um, um, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, which can um, affect younger children um, and elderly in the sense of those living in long-term care, um, often causes for outbreaks there. And then obviously COVID is still around as well. Are you concerned, Dr. Narang, when you look at what's happening in the United States and, and clearly we're not even fully into the season yet? Yeah, no, of course there, there's reason to be concerned, but I think um, part of this is um, the key that we don't know right now was what is the acuity of these children um, or even adults that are presenting to emergency. Is this all being driven by the viruses that are circulating or is there an element that they're um, the access issues where people don't know um, where they can get seen. And for a lot of people, they haven't had any recourse to get seen. Um, and so I think part of this is uh, relates to the investment that's been made into primary care recently. It's going to take some uh, time to fix that. But people, uh, we need to get think about how can we uh, make sure that the average person, the average parent with a newborn knows how to navigate the system easily. And they're seen in the most appropriate setting for you know how unwell the, the child may be. Right. I was thinking about something you had said earlier, too, about the fact that a lot of these kids are probably kids that were born during the pandemic. And so having these types of illnesses, parents well, are not quite accustomed to them either yet. Potentially. I mean, at the very beginning, um, 
if your child's unwell in the sense of um, they might be a little tired, maybe they've thrown up a few extra times, or they feel warm to you, um, uh, or they're more irritable. These are all signs that um, we are all living in a place of um, a lot of anxiety right now, and it's totally understandable. Like uh, you're, like a lot of the parents have been raising um, children at home in, in relative isolation during the pandemic, um, and they, you know, I think there's a lot of um, learning that happens when you're raising yes. child, and, and I don't have that experience yet, so I'm I can only look at it from a medical sense. So there are certain things that we watch out for as um, physicians, and so uh, you know, I, when we taking it back to the Tylenol shortage, I mean, um, it, it it is the fever part of it, but also let's see how is the child doing with that? Are they eating normally? Are they um, tolerating fluids? Um, are they showing that it's it's harder for them to breathe? Again, especially the younger the child is, their airways are so small that even a little bit of mucus can make a very audible uh, difference. Um, and so these are the things we look for because you know, especially the um, the the very young ones, they can't tell us how they're feeling. Right. <laughs> and then for the older ones, if they're telling us, you know, by the time they're two or three, they'll say, you know what, yeah, my tummy hurts a bit, but they're eating their full meal or the temperature is not really high, I think we just need to be, uh, you know, mindful not to get get medications unless it's necessary as well. And I'm hoping um, that the government does source procurement. And for people that can afford it, there are um, pharmacies that can compound their own Tylenol for you. But of course, that's not a feasible option for many people. Right. Well, hopefully things will improve then. Dr. Narang, thank you for Mm. your time. No worries. You take care. You too. That's Dr. Brinder Narang, family physician, NCKNW Global News medical contributor, talking about the increase in respiratory illnesses that we're seeing in children and also that combine that with the shortage that we're seeing in some places of cold and flu medication. And yeah, parents are stressed out about that. If you want to tell me your story, send me at cknw.com. Also, thank you to all the people who have texted or emailed me this morning telling me what their weather situation is like. Got a text message here from Jacob and Elizabeth. Uh, Langford, Victoria, they're saying, looks like it's a snow globe right now. <laughs> looks so pretty. And yes, we heard southern part of Vancouver Island definitely got a blanket of snow last night. Meanwhile, Frank, Frank uh, texted me to say no snow, not even a sign that there was ever any snow south of the Fraser. Thank you for that, Frank. See what I'm saying? Places where you normally think they'd get it, they didn't. Places that don't usually get it, like Southern Vancouver Island, blanketed with snow today. So yes, keep those messages coming. You can call or text our buzz line or email me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's been, what, more than a week or so since the Michelin stars were handed out to a few select Vancouver restaurants. So what does that mean for business these days? Our Raji Sohal is checking up on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I talked to the chef and owner of Kisa Tanto. His name is Chef Joel Watanabe. You know, the recognition from Michelin is it's such a major boost for the restaurant, but it's also a boost for the individual chefs, right? Like for their individual brand as a chef. And Michelin star, it's like winning an Academy Award. It's their holy grail and it's international. Here's Chef Joel. You know, I've been cooking since I was 16 and I've been following Michelin chefs my whole life. So, you know, and it's, it is a big deal. It means something to me. It's pretty, it's validating for my 30 plus years of cooking. It's a, it's a very well-recognized guide and rating system that's been around for a long time. It's respected because of the fact that nobody knows who the judges are. To me, it makes it valid. You know, some of these other 
things like you know we know who a lot of the judges are so that doesn't it just feels more like a you you scratch my back i'll scratch yours type thing let's go back to the summer i guess when everyone was aware that the michelin inspectors were here that they were in town they were eating at restaurants so what was that inspection process like for you I talked to some of my older chef friends who like who have worked in Europe. I didn't really realize I hadn't realized that the Michelin Guide really is only about the food. It's actually not about the decor or even about the service. Whereas I used to think like they would drop a fight. Heard that if they drop a fork just to test to see how quickly you like responded or you know a napkin or this and that so of course I was on high alert and I was telling everybody you know look out for this that the other thing we were definitely looking out for solo diners I wanted my my team to really feel like they're still doing what they do which is you know they which they do very well so I didn't want to unhinge the whole process but I was definitely you know I was definitely a little bit nervous like definitely if it was a single diner we'd be you know we we even put notes on the bills it'd be like solo diner so you've got the star now, and I know probably the dust is still settling, but has the recognition of Michelin affected your business yet? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we couldn't really do more reservations than we we had been doing. I mean, we're pretty much fully booked every night, but um, where I did see the increase was on the weekends. So the weekends, we kind of have a third seating. Normally, we only have two seatings. And so the third seating, I noticed people just are willing to wait and come eat late. And I also noticed that our walk-in tables, whatever whatever we have available for the night, people are willing to come in on the first seating and they're willing to wait. They'll wait the three hours to come back to, to dine. You know, I'm 46 years old and I've been cooking a long time. So this is my moment in my life to, you know how it is. We're all in that race a little bit of trying to take care of our families and, and leave something for our kids and that, that whole thing. So, I mean, for me, that's, that's what it feels like. It feels like a boon to that part of my life. I'm not a money hungry person or a fame hungry person. That's not, I think it's just good for everybody around me. And I, if I can help people around me, that's good. It's better for my cooks means that maybe I can pay them a little bit better. The thing that excites me, actually, I'll be honest with you. The thing that's the best thing for me right now through all these hard times that every industry is feeling about lack of labor, I've started getting resumes through the door. And wow. that is huge for us. A credit to these young, you know, these young kids that have been working for me straight out of school. We got this Michelin on the back of a kitchen that was the greenest kitchen I've ever run uh, in the years, probably since I opened Bao Bay. This is the greenest kitchen I've ever run. And so it was very tough because I was basically running a cooking school. Uh, but these kids worked really hard. Uh, but we were really short staff for like, we are just starting to be okay as of this week. But we've been short staffed the entire time. Well, it's a good thing they're starting to be okay this week, Raji, because I have a feeling they're probably swamped with people wanting reservations. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you know, one thing that uh, Chef Joel told me is that a lot of people have been complaining about the Michelin star thing saying, you know what, you're going to change our city for the worst, it's gonna become more expensive, we won't be able to eat anywhere. And he says no. And he told me that he could actually boost his prices very easily at this time, use that as an opportunity to do that. But he's not going yeah. to. And he said he could also uh, shave off some of the quality and probably still get the bookings, right? Get some of the fish from Costco. There are other 
high-end restaurants that do things like that, but he's not doing it. He refuses to. He's still getting his fish from the fishermen. And I asked him, okay, now that you got the star, what are you going to do to keep it, to sustain it? Because that's got to be hard too. So what does it take to keep things at that level? It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication. It's me trying to keep the morale high in the kitchen. It's me and my partners trying to pay people properly. There's always a romance behind anybody's given uh, ch like chosen career, right? It's, it, they think they're walking into this one thing. But the reality is it's hard work. It's just put your head down and keep your standard high. You know, don't let your mind wander. Don't quit when your body is <laughs> real tired and sore. That's what it takes. It's more of a commitment to the everyday work. They'll be back next year. Like any chef will tell you, like once you get one, you really just can't lose it. You have to keep that that standard high. And and to be honest with you, I, I still love cooking. Like I love being in the kitchen. I That's what I thrive on. I thrive on service. So I'll be in my kitchen next year when they come around. You know, Raji, what's also interesting here is that Vancouver's Michelin stars weren't really given out to the really expensive restaurants, right? Like the criticism there that was levied about, oh, this will make things more expensive. No, yeah. the really expensive restaurants didn't get that recognition. It was the, you know, more comfortable, more casual, but still fantastic food places like Kisitanto that did. Yeah. So one of the things about the Michelin star is it's not meant to take into consideration whatsoever the ambiance of the restaurant, the decor, the customer service. I mean, it is hard to imagine that those things don't affect your meal and to me how it tastes, but they're meant to be totally separate. It's focused on the food and the innovation and the creativity and the heart that the chef puts into those meals. So I do, I do wonder about, you know, how they maintain and sustain this day in and day out from here on out. So it's not like they get to just relax now that they got the Michelin star. It's going to be rigorous to, to keep up. But uh, very interesting there that he said, the chef mentioned that they've been getting so many resumes as a result of this star as well. That's really great to see for the restaurant industry. It really is. All right. Thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that Chinatown needs some help, needs some revitalization. Well, there's a brand new health center that is coming to that neighborhood that follows a $3.8 million donation from a local philanthropist. Now, well, this sounds amazing, right? So let's talk more about it. Let's find out all about it. Carol Lee is with us now, chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I'm excited to learn about this. Tell me about this new health center. Well, the new health center is actually located in the downtown east side at 58 West Hastings, and it's part of a, 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 a social housing complex. So we're going to be building 230 units of social housing, and there'll be a 50,000-square-foot integrated health facility um, that will be operated by Vancouver Coastal Health. And so, I, um, sorry, go I was going to say, how did this happen? Because I know it came about because of a very unique reason. Uh, well, it came about because my is actually the donation was made by my mother, um, who was a public health nurse, and actually the downtown east side in Strathcona was her beat, as she likes to explain it. And she's always had a a very um, you know a strong feeling and affection for this neighborhood. And I think, like many of us, you know, driving through the neighborhood, seeing um, the challenges and the suffering, I think that she felt that this was a way that she could help. 
Carol, that's amazing that your mom cared that much about it to make this donation happen, to want to help the neighborhood. What has the process been like trying to get this going? Um, well, it's been a long, arduous process. I was just reflecting on it, and I had my first meeting on this project in February of 2011. So it took us a long time. You know, even though we're doing social housing, it was a health care project. But, you know, I think it gives us an idea of how we need to make things easier for, I think, any organization that wants to try and do some good. And do you feel like that's a pattern? We, like we could be doing more down there if we did make it easier for these organizations? Well, I think just, you know, building social housing, just building housing in general, I think is, it's been well documented that it uh, has been a, a challenge. So, so hopefully just pressing through and, and showing the way. We, we wanted to try and uh, create a new I would say social housing model that people, um, you know, might like to uh, like to use as a as a model for them to follow. So, so it's not only the housing. So we have 230 units. We have a 50,000 square foot integrated health facility. We also have a community partnership program as well. Um, with uh, right now 32 organizations that want to create a community within a community. So people living in this building will have a chance to go to BC Lions games or Whitecaps games. Um, You know, there's lots of benefits, I think. And the more we can work as a collective towards a kind of a greater good model, I think um, the better off we all are. Can you tell us a bit more about your mom? Because I know that she was so remarkable. Uh, She moved to Vancouver from Alert Bay, what, at the age of 16? Yes. She, um, you know, in those days, her her father actually in the 1920s went to get a a job at... um, I, I, it was, I think, in a logging camp as a, as a cook. But when he arrived with his pregnant wife, they, he was told that, you know, they didn't hire Chinese. So they suggested that, you know, go across the, the inlet over to Alert Bay. So my mother was born, my mother and her five siblings were born in Alert Bay. And somehow with a grade three education, my grandfather managed to send them all to UBC. So my mother came down here in, when she was 16 and met my father and they were, um, they they were together for, I think, 70 years before he passed away a couple of years ago. That is amazing. That's what a story, Carol. And clearly she was very passionate about community health care. Well, she has been her whole life, you know, interested, I think, in health. Um, she's a very healthy woman. She still golfs almost every day and works out every day. Um, but I think that, you know, the idea of, of helping people, and maybe it's, you know, her background where she grew up, but she's always had an interest. Uh, they they um, sponsored the Bob and Lily Lee Community Health Center on uh, on Broadway. So it is something I think she feels it's fundamental. Both of them felt that um, supporting community education and health were three things that you know they were really passionate about and, and really supported throughout their life. And what is the timeline like then for this project to move forward? Well, we hope that it's going to open in uh, spring of 2024. So, you know, we've been working it for a long time. I think we're on the fourth floor now. It's at 58 Hastings, and uh, it's moving along. So it's, uh, it's in, in, uh, hopefully an exciting, you know, catalyst for the neighborhood to see what's possible. Yeah, we know. I think we've all seen and heard the stories. We've talked to you about this, about what is going on in the neighborhood. Are you hopeful that good things are going to happen there? I'm very hopeful. Um, it's, you know, the last uh, year or two have been difficult, but I think what makes you hopeful is, you know, this outpouring of support 
And I think that we've really seen it as a community over the last couple of years. Um, we are excited. We have a, a new mayor in Ken Sim and, and a council that has made a commitment to trying to help the issues in, in Chinatown. So, um, but, you know, for us, it wasn't like at the foundation, it wasn't just about Chinatown. Um, we had a philosophy that was what was good for our neighbor would be good for us and vice versa. So I think it was interesting for a lot of people that our very first project that we did for the Chinatown Foundation was this housing project in the downtown east side. That's going to make... We felt that, yeah, yeah it, we felt that it was important that our neighbor be well, because otherwise it would be hard for us to revitalize. So, so I think it's working out. Is that the difference, do you think, Carol? Because I know we've heard about other developments that, you know, have run up against resistance in Chinatown, but, you know, this one seems to be quite committed to the neighborhood. Well, I think that, you know, this one is not exactly in Chinatown, so it's more in the downtown east side. But, you know, I think it's important just to sort of bring people along and let them know, um, you know, what your plans are and the vision. And I think that I feel that we've gotten a lot of support, so I'm very grateful for that. That sounds good. Now, what are you looking for? We know that the new council was sworn in yesterday. Um, (laughs) You know, I know that, you know, that we want them to hit the ground running. Lots of people are waiting for that. What are you looking for from this new government? Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of hope. And, you know, I think what was clear is that, you know, Vancouverites, we want a, we want a better city, one that works for everybody. And, you know, I think that they've made some commitments to, to neighborhoods that might have needed a little bit more help. So I'm really glad. I think Chinatown was a lot, it was really uh, prominent in the news over the last year. And I think that they identified it. It's a neighborhood that is, is worth helping. And it's, you know, it's not really just one little neighborhood for Vancouver. It's really, I, I think that it's become apparent. It's, it's kind of part of our history of the city, the province, and the country. And so uh, I think that I've got a lot of hope for what's to come. Well, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about it this morning. Thanks so much, Jimmy. That's Carol Lee, chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, talking about this great new health center that is coming to the neighborhood. This follows an almost $4 million donation from Lily Lee, former nurse in the downtown east side, also Carol's mom, actually. Lily Lee uh, was the donor. We'll have the health center named after her. So it will be the Lily Lee Community Health Center. Uh, And yeah, they look forward to providing this integrated space along with Vancouver Coastal Health, critical resources, accessible health care, and they hope to support the unique needs of both Chinatown and the downtown east side communities. Something that I think a little revitalization there that that neighborhood really, really does need. This is Mornings with Simi. 